0: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at
1: tmobile.com slash now.
2: Henry Rollins is intense about the
0: things he loves. It's like he's on a mission from God. And he's been that way since his days as Black Flag's frontman in the 80s. Their music was pure aggression. At shows, there was no delineating between the band and the audience. It was all just one big mosh pit, With Rollins physically fighting off the crowd and dodging beer bottles hurled at his head. Real punk rock. stop
1: we rise
0: above for nearly 25 years, Henry Rollins toured the world relentlessly. First with Black Flag, then Rollins Band. And most recently, as a spoken word artist. Just before the pandemic, he performed in 21 countries and was a keynote speaker at conferences for things as mundane as software, but also at cannabis conventions, which is funny for someone as famously straight-edge as Rollins. Henry and Rick Rubin, two of the most music-obsessed dudes of all time, met way back in the day. They even started the Infinite Zero label together in the early 90s to reissue long forgotten albums they both loved. Rick sat with Henry at Shangri-La pre-pandemic and in full Rollins fashion, the stories just poured out of him. Henry talks about the time he was christened a lead singer by HR from Bad Brains, the day he woke up and realized he was done writing music and why he'll never be the old guy on stage performing his greatest hits. This is Broken Record. Liner Notes for The Digital Age. I'm Justin Richmond.
3: Here's Rick Rubin and Henry Rollins. I was thinking about the, the fact that um, both of us have essentially made music our lives and neither of us, I would say, are particularly virtuoso. At I'm any- not a musician. Me either.
1: <laughs> I, can't, I can't play a note on any instrument all I can do is buy him and carry him upstairs. Yes. I, I, I can't. And I've, and I've never wanted to. I mean, I've written songs yes. in my head. I, I co-wrote a song with George Clinton once, and we hummed it to the band. Yes. He's like, go, oh, I got something. And he hummed I go, that's King Crimson. How'd you know? I said, I have that record. And he hummed <laughs> another one. I go, that's one of your own records. Like, oh, man. And then we finally came up with something that he, you know, wasn't already used and then i hummed something and we wrote this song together and neither one of us uh, he could probably play something i don't know but we just found the music by just going and the band like like this i'm like yeah man and it was fascinating to be standing in front of these guys sitting it was at the old cherokee studios Mm -hmm. me and clinton looking at these guys going and a song happened yeah with no with none of us sitting at a piano or anything yeah So if you, if you know what you want to hear, you know, and I've, I've never been a musician. I, you know, I was angry and they said, here's a microphone, here's a beat, do your thing. All right. That I can do. Yes. Like one time our, our second bass player, Melvin Gibbs, he heard me sing. He goes, Oh, just put it in E man. Just, just." I go, what does that mean? Like you're E. I didn't know what that meant until later. Like it's just anyone can hit it. Henry, just you're safe in E. I'm like, I still don't know what it means really. I went, I guess that means I suck. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
3: limited. What was your first love affair with music? Go to the, tell me your first memories of like, this is for me.
1: A couple of things. Well, my mom had pitch perfect taste in music and we rarely watched TV, but we, she would play one record after another. And we go to the record store. Up to three nights a week. My mom is a record buyer. Bartok, Stravinsky, Beethoven, Hendrix, uh, Marian McCabe, Barbara Streisand, Show Tudes, like Porgy and Bess, Miles, Monk, Coltrane. I mean, like, perfect taste in music. I don't necessarily need a Barbara Streisand record every day, but those are good records. I mean, she's not messing around. No, she's incredible. She's incredible. Leadbelly, Dylan, both Guthrie's. My mom is like, her record collection is a mwah. And as a young adult, I went through her record collection as like a twenty something who knew a thing or two. And I went, "Wow, Miles Davis! Like, how come? Uh, how come it stops it in a silent way?" She goes, "I, I just couldn't. I stopped understanding Miles at a certain point." And she said, "I used to go see Miles and Coltrane all the time." I said, "You saw Miles and?" She goes, "Yeah, together, separately." I'm like, "You're killing me! I had no idea how cool my mom was." So, I was raised in good music, but. The thing that really knocked me out was Ringo drumming on Sergeant Pepper. I'm like, oh, I'm like eight years old, hyperactive, and just bouncing off the walls of my little room. My mom gave me Beatles records as electric babysitters, so I just play them over and over again. But it was Ringo on um, the outro version, the the la- you know the outro Sergeant Pepper riff on the way out of the record, uh-huh. where he's just like naked, just doing that that stacked up Ringo beat. And I said, that's that's what I'm talking about. I didn't even know what I was into. I just liked that. Yeah. And that 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 plays in my head all the time. Yeah. And that was the hook. And the first things I bought when I made money like throwing newspapers was records. And I I bought a you know bike and records. It wasn't candy, uh, drugs, it was music. And I, you know, records were $4.99 back when Carter was president. And I would make my money and go buy my $4.99, some girls fly like an eagle, rocks, toys in the attic, you know, whatever was what was up. And so-
3: How old are you at this time? 15, 14? Yeah,
1: I was buying records steadily by the time I was 14. I was at school one time, I would prep school, old boys. And I walked by one of the major jocks. He's got one of those one speaker tape decks. And he's got this crazy music coming from, and I, I took all the courage I could summon. Like, excuse me, sir, what are you listening to? And he looked at me like I was the dumbest guy on the planet. He'd like Ted Nugent, like get a clue. I was like, duly noted. And I went to the record store after school that day because I, I always worked. I always had little pocket money, and I bought Free for All. And then I went backwards and bought the first album. And those are the re- Ted Nugent records that were out. And I put them on. I'm like, oh, that's. There it is. That's what I'm talking about. And then a couple of years later, me and Ian Mackay saw him live. And that was kind of like one of the best things I've ever seen. And it was like, to this day, top five live gigs I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen quite a few gigs. And um, so music was an obsession all through high school because it was the escape from the drudgery of an all boys prep school where I was a hyperactive riddling adult student who didn't do well on any level in school. That's when me and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, um, our friend, um, we we were gig guys. We would just go to the see the everybody, Van Halen, Aerosmith, Zeppelin. We saw everything we could. And um, then when punk rock hit, that's when music became like it went into the red as far as collector guy need to know too much about everything hair-splitting, you know, magnifying glass out looking at the label, where I, you know, took way better care of my records and just became super vinyl obsessive.
3: What was the first punk record for you? First one you heard, first one you
1: got? First one I heard was the first Ramones album. I was, I was kind of birthed purely. Yes, I read about these bands. You're like, what's this punk rock craze? And I had Nugent records. That was my crazy music. And a guy in my neighborhood who's on a lot of the early Discord records, Roberto, Bert Quiroz, Bert was like the, the cool kid. He just a like, sharp guy, really sharp guy. Has his ear to the ground, and he knows about import records. And one day we're at the skate ramp, and I said, you know, my music no longer <laughs> addresses my issues. I was like 16 and mad at everything. 17, whatever. I was just pissed. And like, you know, Fly Like an Eagle, great record. It's just not cutting it you know, I don't understand the poetry, the lyrics. I want to, you know, meet a girl and burn something to the ground. And so he said, come with me. So I went to his microscopic apartment he shared with his mom. He was like, I'm going to loan you this record. I need it back. Tomorrow, this first Ramones album, and my mom wasn't home from work yet. So I put it on her nice speakers, not my crappy GE in my room. And uh, I heard the first Ramones album. And I don't get it. Uh, there's a joke record, these four morons on the cover. That's not a rock band. They don't look like ELO. Like, what's what's their problem? And then you get to the end of it, like, okay, that's funny. That's not then you play it again, because he said you need to play it three times. I'm like, okay. It's a 30-minute
3: record. It's easy. Great advice. Great advice. Yes. Because
1: the first two times, the first time you're like, this is hilarious. Yeah. Second time you're like, and then the third time you're like, oh, light bulb. And you're like, this is my band. And with great regret and some reluctance, I hit the tries it from my grasp and then he said okay here's your next lesson first clash shop because that's an import be careful i go what's an import he goes that's a day's pay that's what that is 20 record in 1979 or whatever took the remote the clash record back and still to this day one of my favorite records and those records blew my mind i just didn't know you could do that with i didn't know you could say that in a lyric have not so many instruments on a record i'm used to elo 90 keyboards and you know, I love those records. Yeah, I, you know, I, I walk through the snow to buy out of the blue or whatever the big double album is. I love that record. But it's like 80 of everything, and it's all so perfect you can't get near it. With the remotes, you hear the cracks, like, oh, those are humans. And I never thought I could do that. But you like you look at them, I could approach those guys. You're never gonna meet Robert Plant, but you could meet one of those guys, and all of a sudden I went from seeing Led Zeppelin at the Capitol Center, it's gone now with Ian, to seeing February 15th, 1971, seeing Bo Diddley opening for The Clash. Wow. And he said, you he looks at the crowd, a bunch of little, like all 150 of us. Do you remember the coolest thing you could have? It was a 55 Chevy and a girl at your side. We're like, yay. He's like, no, you don't. We're like, okay, whatever. We're just trying to be there with you, man. And so Bo Diddley played. He was brought there. He's a DC guy. So he walked to the show. He lived right down the street. Wow. So the Clash requested him because he knew he's a DC native. And then the Clash played and they opened with Janie Jones or Wyatt Riot, something. And it was like getting hit with this blinding white light. And it just seemed to burn like I'm burning, like my skin's on fire. This is like destroying every notion I have of what music. So I used to watch from like a block away. And suddenly, uh, within a year, I'm being sweated on by Didi Ramon. Lux Interior is down to his underwear landing on me i'm like ooh, naked man like it became real uh the bad brains are breathing on me because i'm standing in front of them at a punk rock party and that's when music went from this spectator sport to this thing that i knew was going to be my life even if it's just fanboy record store go-to guy going to a gig guy i never thought of being in a band until one night hr of the bad brains he said henry you're a singer and I said, no, man, you're, you're the singer. He said, no, you're a singer. And tonight, you're going to be in the Bad Brains. And I'm standing in front of him. And he grabbed me by my arm, put me on stage, gave me the microphone, went back down off the stage about as high as the couch we're sitting on, and stood in front of me with his arms crossed. And I knew those songs. We all did. And I just called out a couple mid-tempo ones I could try and get near. And I sang them. And I, I remember HR looking at me with this intense scowl like, see? And I was like, "Oh well, I guess here's your mic back." That was a thrilling three and a half minutes. And it, but it, in, within a few months, I was in a band. But what um, was the first band? Soa it was me and some other guy. Yeah, you know, we weren't that good. We had a lot of fun. Our songs were forty four seconds. Great. Gigs were nine minutes in in length. All the songs we had fit on one forty five, and it's like at least five and a half minutes of music. Great. Yeah. How long? Did, how
3: long did that band last?
1: I got into that band. They were pre existing and the singer, some guy named Lyle Pressler, he never went anywhere, he was also a really good guitar player, so he moved across town to some band called Minor Threat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> them. Anyway, so Lyle leaves, and he leaves behind this band who needs a singer. So I go see his old band, The X-Dorts, one night, and they're shopping for a singer. So everyone knows who... Our scene is, you can fit them all in this room. It's not that many people. So they know who I am. I know who they are. So I said, I'll sing with you guys. And they went, okay. I think they're too scared to say no, because they're just, you know, ah scary guy with no hair. And so suddenly I'm at band practice having to write lyrics, which amazingly was not that difficult. Well, I can't say anything about the quality of the lyrics, but it came to me. I was probably pretty pedestrian, like I'll sing on every snare beat because melody is not my thing. But um, suddenly I'm in this band and it felt right. It felt really right. It felt like I was a fish dropped into water. No stage fright, none, zero. Like I couldn't wait. And that was October 80. By July 81, I'm in California at Black Flag practice. How did that happen? That's crazy. I'll give you the hyper-condensed version. I knew those guys because they would come through town. And when they were in DC, they'd stay in Ian's mom's basement. So Ian's house was the coolest in DC because you could go there. And excuse me, Ms. Mackay, is Ian home? He's downstairs with Black Flag. And so we're we're all like, "You're in Black Flag." We're just like standing there, like gooey on the inside. So I got to know those guys, and you know, they're just broke touring band as I was soon to find out. And they were doing a tour on the East Coast. I met them in March, April. They came back in July not playing dc so i took a uh drove my car up to see them at irving plaza and a guest list i hung out with them all afternoon because i kind of sort of knew them F- drove with them to another show at second and a uh there and i helped them load in me and john joseph of the crow mags loaded their gear in watched a guy get stabbed like okay that 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 just happened here's the snare <laughs> And I'm looking at my watch. I got to drive to DC and do a full shift at haagen on No Sleep. But I'm young. I can totally do it. Just one thing of top ramen noodles. I'm good to go. And so I looked at my watch and I, I said, hey, they're playing this tiny bar. I said, can you guys do a song for me? It's called Clocked In. It's a great riff. And Des, the great singer at the time, he said, uh, this is for Henry. It's called Clocked In because he's got to go to work. And the audience is like, who's, who's that? And I looked at, I have no memory of this. I looked at Des and Des looked at me. And suddenly I'm standing on stage with him. And I must've had quite a look on my face because I looked at him. He just gave me the mic. Like, don't hurt me. Here's the mic. I'm like, okay. And the band was like, oh, Henry's going to sing. I knew the words. It's like a 90 second song. And I sang the words the way I thought those songs should be sung. We're like vital organs fly out of your mouth. The audience is terrified and Rome burns to the ground. And you know, rah, 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 I do the thing. And I'm, I'll, I remember two things. I remember the audience going like ah like looking at like they're being assaulted and greg and chuck looking at the center of the stage at me going like huh like that's keeping us awake and i gave the mic back and i got into my wounded 1968 vw fastback with the dent in the hood from where the mace canister bounced off it when my mom was locked in a traffic jam riot in the 60s (laughs) i drive the wounded car to my work shower in the work sink pull on a new shirt and I'm scooping ice cream, thinking I was in Black Flag for 90 seconds. I've been, you know, I'm I'm 20. My life is one humiliation after another. Minimum wage jobs are going to be my my life. This is I got no plan. But man, that was right. I was I was in the right place. Now I got band practice. I go back to go back to work. And the phone rings. It's someone in Black Flag has found my found the work number. Hey, Henry, we're auditioning singers. Uh, Des wants to move to rhythm guitar. You're pretty crazy last night. You want to come up here to New York and audition? We'll pay your train fare. I'm like, what do I have to lose? I'm 20. I'm going nowhere, 3.75 an hour. I have nothing to lose. And I'm not a tough guy. I don't have a lot of guts and courage. But I said, this is it. This is a shot. It's, this is never happening to me again. No way. Shouldn't be happening now. So I said, I'll be there tomorrow. Give me an address. Met the Met at, uh, at Odessa, Mm-hmm. polish diners great a lot of food for cheap that's why they liked it i ate there so many times in black flag since anyway i said so what are we doing i'm still not close that we're gonna go to a practice place and you're gonna sing two sets i said i don't know any of the words they hardly have any records out they said sucks to be you
3: what was out at that point the yellow
1: uh yeah jealous again the yellow 12 inch six pack was the ep they were touring on and then there was the um the damage sing- the um Damage One and Louie Louis, the on Posh Boy, the single, and Nervous Breakdown EP. So not
3: much. Not much. Not
1: much at all. Not TV Party and yes, Rise Above yes, yes, and yes. all the big stuff. And you in, know.
3: in your world, what was Black Flag to you at that time? Before- Everything. It,
1: it, to me, it was the ultimate band. And they asked me, like, what's your favorite song of ours? I said Damage One, the slow one with the wrong chord. Yeah, Like, dun, 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 And I was like, that's the song. And they went, you like that? You like the slow one? I'm like... Yeah, that's the one that makes me want to go, like, kill everyone. They went, you're all right. They they were fascinated that I liked the slow, wrong one. Classic gin, weirdo chord, which is genius. Yeah. And that was my jam. And they went, okay, you're interesting. And so we get in this tiny practice room, and I literally am holding a microphone, a 57, not a 58. And I pinched myself because I did... I didn't believe. I said, so what song you want to start with? I said, well, I didn't even know many of the song titles. I said, Police Story. And Gin has an on-off. He doesn't have a tone thing. He, he took that out and just put an on-off switch. So in all the early Black Flag records, you hear, and that's just him hitting on. And the thing starts howling with feedback. It's a Dan Armstrong with the pickups floating in resin. So it's a feedback machine. And all I can remember is, and 90 minutes later, We've done every song twice. I'm completely soaked in sweat. I have no real memory of it. All I remember is I just kind of went, ooh, wah, wah, and yelled and screamed. I had fun. And they said, okay, we're going to have a band meeting. You go wait in the front lounge. I ran across the street, got one of those cool glass bottles of Tropicana, not from Concentrate. I'm like, cool, live in large, dollar thirty-five. And I'm sitting there waiting for the verdict, which I figure is going to be like hours. They're going to take out the skull and light the candle and whip out the sacred <laughs> verses. Now they came out in like three minutes. And one of them, I think it was Dukowski said, so matter of factly, like, you're in. And I said, excuse me, you're in. I said, in what? In Black Flag. Who? You, me? Yeah. Doing what? You're the singer. Of who? Black Flag. Because they, they weren't like, br, he's like, so you're in. And I was in disbelief, and one of them finally said, do you want the job or not? I was like, yeah, wait, wait a minute. I was scooping ice cream yesterday. Is this happening? Yeah. It was unreal. Yeah. So I said, so what do I do? And I, I forget which, maybe it was Dukowski. He hands me this massive folder of lyrics. And, you know, they were prepared. And they said, you, you, you learn these, you go home, you kiss your little mommy goodbye. You quit your job. You give all your stuff away. You pack a bag. Here's the tour itinerary. You meet us as soon as you can. And then one of the road crew guys started laughing. And what's so funny? Like, Man, we got we to make the album soon. I said, what album? The first Black Flag album. I said, uh-huh. So who's singing on that? And they went, you! Do you get it? I feared it would be Dez, like the Farewell Dez album. I didn't know. And I I get on the train, numb, like speechless, kind of holding this folder like it's not even mine. And I go to work, and Ian Mackay calls because there's no internet. He said, Where have you been? We talk every day. He said, I said, Okay. I left town like yesterday, day before. I didn't have time to tell you anything. So here's what just happened. And I don't ask advice of people, I just go make a mistake and, you know, limp away. But I, I asked Ian, I go, so what do you think? He said, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. This is going to be great. Yeah. And so it took me a few days to pack, give things away, including that car, quit my job. And my boss said, well, I'll give you $4 an hour, like, you know, an incentive. I said, I love my job, Steve. We're still friends to this day. I, I said, I like my job. He helped me get my first apartment. He gave me, he got me credit. Mm-hmm. Like he, he called the landlord and said, I got this. If he screws up, I got this. That's how I got my first apartment. So he means a lot to me, trusting me with his money. He, I ran his store, his, his Hagen does. And so I said, I got to go. He said, no, you, this, you got to do this. This is a shot. You're not going to get this again. So if it craps out on you, you can have your old job back. And I said, man, you never know. I might, I might be back. And a few days later my old band played with Black Flag in Philadelphia and I sang the encore with Black Flag. And that was the handing of the baton where Chuck went up to the mic and said, and here's the new singer of Black Flag. And I went out on stage and sang Louie Louie and like one or two others. And everyone kind of went, whatever. And the owner of that club a few years ago sent me the set list. Wow. He said, here's the set list where you transitioned into Black Flag. And I went back to D.C. because I still had to like, you know, clean up a few things. And a couple of days later, I was on a Greyhound bus overnight to Detroit. I still have the bus ticket. I take a taxi to Clutch Cargo, the the now famous punk rock venue. I beat the band there. They're driving from some other city. And I come in with my duffel bag and I I walk in. There's a lady behind the bar. She goes, can I help you? I said, you know, I was born polite. I said, yes, ma'am. And I've never said I had never said this as a declarative sentence to anyone in my life except this lady behind the bar. It's like two in the afternoon. She said, "Can I help you?" I said, "I I I'm the singer in Black Flag." Like not even. I thought she was going to go get out of here. She went, "Oh, would you like a coke?" Come on, yes, please. What was the
3: relationship from the beginning between Greg and Chuck? How did how did that work?
1: Founding members. Yeah. And left side, right side brain dukowski hard on sleeve you know tears up during songs he's really like just ripped open greg is the more hyper analytical they're both smart different but they're utilizing different parts of the brain and you can see it in the lyrics chuck is writing my war other stuff was just ripped open emotionally greg is coming for the more introspective both of them are super effective great songwriters but where one is writing, like you know, rise above, Greg, American waste, which is like let's burn America to the ground before they kill us all, Chuck. But when you have both sides of the brain, left side, right side, on one record, you have this fully realized introspective person who's mad, and so that's why like those early records really work because all parts of your your young, angry, insecure palate are being addressed. You know, you have a Hall and Oates. Yeah. And, and it worked. And later on, their relationship became antagonistic, leading, and I'm not talking out of class, it's all documented, leading for Dukowski to eventually sell his share of SST and, and move on. And so it became Greg's scene. Do you know what that was about? It's just about the combination of Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski and if you look at the history of Greg Ginn and everyone in Black Flag and every artist on SST, I'm sure you know quite a bit about this and anyone on, wants to take the merest glance onto the internet. I'm not trying to talk out of class. Kind of Greg plus anyone is a turbulent, time-stamped... There, it, it will come to an end. I like see. there is a use-by date. And don't stick around after Monday when the thing is... <laughs> just, just leave. And so I left. Uh... And so they were an amazing combination. The, the closest thing that I can, in my life, was Bob Mould and Grant Hart of Husker Du. Two guys, again, Bob Mould, the introspective, analytical Grant Hart, completely ripped open, both insanely talented, and almost knocked down drag out fights with those two back in the day. Because they're both, you know, getting loaded or whatever. There's this crazy young men. Super talented, but I saw who's good and went, Oh, I'm in a band like that. <laughs> Where, like, you know, everyone is just like gnarly at all times. And that's why those records sound like they do. Like, you play them now as a man pushing 60. I hear some of those songs every once in a while somewhere. And I go, Yeah, that's music you make when you're young and hungry and really mad. I can't make that music now because I got too much money in the bank. I eat three meals a day and I, nothing really inconveniences me. And I, I'm just not there anymore. Um, but when you're young, you're feral. And the way Black Flag lived, it was a constant like, well, let's hope there's not the second stabbing this week at one of our shows. And so those days, you became your environment. We'll be right
0: back with Henry Rollins after a quick break.
2: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. That's T-Mobile.com/slash-UnconventionalAwards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a
0: job is where America goes to hire We're back with more from Henry Rollins.
3: What was the difference in the shows between the, U- the UK and, and the
1: US? Far less antagonism. In England in those days, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, it was a bunch of people telling you to go home. And I'm a guy who grew up in the record store, so we're opening for The Exploited. I had the dude's records. I, that was an hour's pay to buy that single. And his road crew would come into our dressing room, take our food, And, you know, we don't want to, you know, they're all these Scottish maniacs. They will kill you. So like, take our four bananas and the the cold ham sandwich. So we starve. And the singer hated us because we're from America. And he'd go on stage and like, you know, kill the American wankers. And we opened for Chelsea. And I had those records, too. Liked them. And the singer like, hey, hey, California. Hey, Mr. America. I'm like, what have I done to you? And so all these bands were really mean to us, except the Damned and the UK subs. But all these bands who I had records of were just awful to us. And there's this spitting. And when you're opening for a band, they kind of don't like you. Like when you open for the Damned, the audience wants to see one band. It's not you. And their audience was kind of nice. But the exploited audience, they just want to beat you up. And we're we're not shrinking violence either we're coming on with our thing which is pretty insane in those days we're like, you don't like us we don't like you either and here it comes so we came back to america basically to a hero's welcome you know yay they already knew us you know you you're an american band who or they already had a built-in audience and so two nights later you're up in boston doing two sets and on bcm with oedipus after the show Amazing. in a heated van it, it's all different
3: yeah let's talk about the making of the first album sure
1: uh, it was made in uh, autumn of 1981 uh, at a place which is now a Trader Joe's on Santa Monica Boulevard, a little west of La Cienega. And it was a uh, unicorn recording Studios. Black Flag lived in the offices above. We slept on the floor. There's a practice room on that floor, so we'd practice there. You'd go downstairs to their offices, wood paneling, f- plush carpets, a total 1970s into the 80s studio tiny studio but we didn't need much it was like a very bare bones environment we knew the songs and so we recorded by day with spot producing but here's the thing now is everyone's dead we can talk about it what unicorn didn't understand was we live on top of the we're in the same building they go home at 5 p.m the owner this receptionist it's a record company with a studio at 5 p.m everyone's out of there the way to get to the studio from the upstairs is one door you just turn that little thing in the middle of the knob you just leave it open soon as they're gone like at 5 p.m we're like oh, we're really tired and they'd leave and we'd leave at 5:15. We're right back in there. Overdubs, vocals, till about 7.30 in the morning. Open up the doors, air the place out, because a bunch of man odor. We've been in there sweating all night, singing the chorus of TV Party 80 times. You air it out, turn everything off, and tiptoe upstairs, sleep for 40 minutes, and come back down, having just clocked a good 12 hours of free time. Because we can't afford what it would really cost. And so we would do everything at night, like tons of overdubs and finished the record at night and unicorn probably made plenty off us but we made that record on um, you know by using it at night and who knows if they knew or even cared but we we did that but we made the record very quickly because of all the demoing and the years of playing those songs on stage some of the songs were new like tv party was super new but the rest of them were like you know a couple of years old, so like it wasn't like anyone had a question about them, you've been playing 100 times. By 83, we're playing the songs that wouldn't be released until 84. In fact, My War, Slip It In, all those, we demoed those in 82. That's how quick Greg and Chuck were writing them. So we're still doing the damage set, but we're playing the rock stuff. And so we started playing those songs in late 82, 80, September 82 into 83. And the audiences are just like standing there flipping us off. It's like, nope, what is this? And by 84, it's all seven minute sludgy, slow songs. And the audience was of two minds, either like, man, this has never been better. Like, this is the most intense or I hate you guys. And I paid my $5.50 to come here and abuse the singer. <laughs> and it only became more either with us or against us, because every album was different. By 86, the shows, the audiences were pretty angry because they didn't like the new songs. And a lot of them they hadn't heard. And they wanted the old ones. And they took it out on us, like things would hit the stage, equipment would get abused, the PA would get abused, the players would get abused, the singer would get abused. And so by the end of that, the last tour, it was kind of a, a miserable hate fest of a record or, or songs that people weren't that into lyrics. I didn't quite get along with all that. Well, and a band that was incredibly unhappy and I'm not trying to put anyone down. It's just, you know, people are together in a band very intensely. It is what it is. You know, you know, you've, you've been around a, a few bands in your life, Rick. It's closer than a family. Yeah. It's a bunch of crazy creative people all in a compressed space doing the same thing every night and everything smells like somebody's laundry and you're like okay i hate your guts so let's go on tour and that's how it it is as much as those people have made me mad over the years when it came down to it i would jump in front of anything bad coming their way i i have to because yeah. we're all on that battlefield and you know and the, some of those men make me very angry and, but if it, if it was something bad was happening right now, I'd be right there. Like, I got this hit me instead.
3: How did it work that you left the band?
1: The tour came, the last show was in Detroit, two nights at Greystone. We finished, drove back to LA. Greg had said initially, we're going to take a year off because I'm going to reinvent SST. I'm like, what's that going to be like? Cause I, I never understood an hour off from that band. You were never far away. And I went a year that might as well be 10 years. I didn't know what to do. And I was on the East Coast visiting, you know, Ian and all these people. And I get the phone call from Greg and he said, oh, I quit. And I, I'll never forget this. I said, it's your band. You can't quit. He said, well, I quit. And I hung up the phone and went, wow, that's that. And when you're a young guy and you go from a minimum wage job And your first day in LA, you're in the LA Times, and you're in this very intense band with a very strong work ethos, and everything is a big damn deal. And all of a sudden, it's over in a phone call where the jet doesn't land, it kind of drops out of the sky and goes into a thousand pieces on the ground, and you stagger away from this wrecked bit of shrapnel. You don't go, Oh, I'll do you like, Ah, what do I do? How do you breathe? Who am I without Black Flag? And I'll never forget, I read somewhere, like on a fortune cookie, if one seeks to change, one must be prepared to seem stupid. And you got to go try new things. Like, okay, and right around that time, I got an offer to audition for a film. And so I went to New York, and I auditioned for this film. I have no memory of it. And I'm like, okay, I did that. I'm going to try and act now. And that was Ju- July, August, by October. I'm in Leeds, England, making my first solo record. So I realized if I don't hit the ground and run, I'm going to hit the ground and rot. And so my old pal from Washington, D.C., Chris Haskett, he and I grew up together. He had a really good band called The Enzymes in D.C., and he used to live in England. Chris said, as a joke, if Black Flag ever breaks up like that'll happen, you and I should make a record. And I said, okay. And I called him. He, was, he happened to be back in America visiting his folks because he was living in Leeds, England. I said, hey, Chris, it's Henry. The Eagle has landed. I I don't have a band. And he was like, I got a band. I got this. Like he had been waiting, like yeah. he knew before I did. He goes, I have a whole band. They're in Leeds. I know a studio. I got a practice place. You're going to live in my room, and we're going to write songs. I'll see you in England in like 10 days. And I, I had like 2,500 bucks to my name. I got a standby flight. And I remember getting out of the plane I took a bus, a coach up to Leeds with like a backpack and on fear of failure, tons of tea and And Onion Bajis, Chris Haskett and I wrote like 18 songs in four days, recorded them in five days, like two takes, with his rhythm section from his surf instrumental band. (laughs) And I said, hi, I'm Henry. I'm about to terrify you with the scariest lyrics you've ever heard. And they heard them like, you're a scary guy. I said, you have no idea. And so we made a record called Hot Animal Machine, and we made this little record for no money, and it's pretty good. And so by April of 87 like less than a year after Black Flag broke up. I'm in band practice in Trenton, New Jersey with Andrew and Sim of Greg Ginn's old instrumental band, Gone, who had broken up. Chris from the Hot L Machine record. And we called it the Rollins Band. And almost a year to the day, we're back in Leeds at the same studio. We recorded Hot L Machine recording Lifetime. All new songs we wrote on the road. We were we road tested them. We played them every night. And I since 81 till the end of the Rollins band I never really kind of put the mic down where is he he's writing songs where is he now on tour where is he now making a record around and round you go like AC/DC and everyone else trying to prove it every night and I did that for damn near 25 years incredible you know and and playing more than kind of any band I know of besides maybe DOA or like the Chili Peppers, they go at it. They're gladiators. You know, they lay leave for three months, three years. You know, they're, they're not kidding around. And, and we toured, that's what Black Flag taught me. Play every night. And suddenly, you know, we're rocking in Singapore. We're playing in Moscow. You know, I go, you guys into this? They're like, yeah, we're playing in Budapest, Hungary. Who would have thought? And we just basically said yes to every gig. And that's how I toured to this day. We'll be right back with Henry Rollins
0: after a quick break. with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms apply.
2: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com/slash unconventional awards. That's T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
0: Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajobs got a worker for that. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Henry Rollins. What was the first speaking
3: engagement you did?
1: Um, 1983. The Harvey Kubernetes, a great local tastemaker producer in this in this town, he used to do these shows where you get 20 people, everyone gets five minutes. And Dukowski would read from his little notebooks of doom, he'd talk about the apocalypse or whatever. I would go with Chuck. John Doe would go up and sing a song. Jeffrey Lee Pierce at the Gun Club would read from five minutes of his tour journal. It was like really fun. They have real poets, performance artists, movie stars would talk. And I'd go with Chuck. We lived in the beach. I'd go to the big city, look at pretty women, you know, be in Hollywood with the real people. And so one night Harvey came up to me at the Lassa Club, I think, and he said, "Uh, we're doing a show next week. Chuck's on the bill. Why don't you get on the bill? I'm like, what am I going to do? He said, you got a big mouth. You never shut up. Um, five minutes, like 10 bucks. I think it was, I was like, and I, all I saw was the money. I was like, $10. How many omelets can I get for 10? Like, that's a lot of, uh, huevos rancheros. So I was like, cause I'm just hungry all the time. And so, you know, with sheer chutzpah, I went on stage the next week with a, some writing folded in my ass pocket, read the two things, told a story about what had happened the day before band practice when a neo-Nazi tried to run over Greg, with his car, as Greg was on his way to the little store to get a thing of orange juice, which is just Tuesday for Black Flag. The audience, their jaws were on the ground. I said, oh, I got it. My seven minutes or whatever are, are up. And huge applause. And I remember two things distinctly. One, I don't need a band. In that, I have no stage fright. Give me another half an hour. I got this. I love being alone with a microphone. I could be George Carlin. I was raised on all those records. I'm not comparing myself. I'm saying... Yes. I can get by without a band. And people coming up to me afterwards going, when's your next show? I said, well, I'm leaving on tour. They go, no, no, not the band. When you just talk. I went, never. I got my $10 bill. Then Harvey came up to me and he said, okay, you're a natural. And I said, whatever. He said, how about this? I book half the poets on tonight's stage. I manage them. Three of them are doing a poetry reading at a bookstore in... Wherever, why don't you do fifteen minutes and I'll give you twenty-five dollars? Okay. Within by the end of 83, beginning of 84, some of those poets, much to their chagrin, were opening for me. Wow. Because I was drawing people. By the end of Black Flag, in some major cities, I could draw almost as many people as Black Flag on my own. And not everyone in the band was cool about this. And so suddenly, I'm doing radio interviews about my writing and my speaking. I'm on the cover of this magazine because of spoken word. And so I had this whole other thing. And by autumn 85, when the Loose Nut Black Flag tour came to an end, I left almost immediately across America, 12 to 50 people a night, with our old sound man driving the van and doing sound for me. And we just did a talking tour from la to new york and back and it just and then by 85 i got invited to a poetry festival in holland sure it's me and linton queasy johnson and who came up to me after he said righteous mr rollins i said thank you sir (laughs) Uh, bill burroughs was on the bill jeffrey lee pierce all kinds of people and with the rollins band i finished the The band tour, we made the Lifetime record. They all went home, and I was in debt to all of them. I owed them all money. So I left on a talking tour. (laughs) Like three days later, I'm doing that entire tour again. And so I got back to L.A. December 87 and did two sold-out nights at the Lhasa Club with Hubert Selby of Last Exit to Brooklyn fame opening for me. Wow. Crazy. Wow. And so from then to now, I now do 21, 22 countries, I sell out multiple nights at the Sydney Opera House. I mean, it's crazy. It's unbelievable. And, you know, I get amazing offers, like keynote our convention. What What's the convention about? Software and progress and make a speech about where the world needs to go in the future. <laughs> really? Oh, we think you're perfect for that. Okay. <laughs> and speak at this commencement, this Get these kids out of college i've done that a couple of times i i don't i take work seriously i take dedication seriously but luckily i don't take myself seriously and so it's it's opened up this whole other thing for me where i'm not the guy in a band and a lot of my peers they go out and we're doing the first album again 25 years later okay want to come along no no i don't i'll pay money i'll go see it but uh, coming, uh, no, no. And so I don't have to go out there and remember this one, kids. Like my dad does. And so that's where it is now when you're almost 60. Like, you know, I, I see all these old men. I, I, like, I, I, I know that old guy from somewhere. Oh, of course, I'm his age. He was at my shows. I remember that guy. The, the smart thing I did as a younger man was one day I woke up in my bed and I went, I'm done with music. I don't hate it. I just have no more lyrics. There's no more toothpaste in the tube. I called my manager at the time. I said, I'm done with music. And that was, you know, 15% of of that was a good thing for him. He's like, no, no. I thought, yes. And so luckily I had enough, you know, movies, voiceover, documentary work, writing, talking, where that just filled in. And now I'm busier than ever. But um, I walked away before I had to start saying, hey, kids, remember this one? So I didn't have to put it on and and go out there and put on the dog and yelp for my dinner. And I've had gentle discussions with major rock stars who you've produced <laughs> why you go out there. And I go, you go out and you play those same songs every night for the last 40 years. And one of these people who I love dearly said, yeah, that's what people want. I go, you want to give them what they want? He went, yeah, he's an older school guy, even older than me. Yeah. And he said, yeah, that's, you want to make people happy. I'm like, you do? Huh? I never <laughs> thought of that. That never once occurred to me. And he went, what do you do? I go, this, is what I, what's, what's on next? He went, huh? How's that treating you? I'm like, well, I need bus here to get home, but, <laughs> but just two different schools. Yeah. And his whole thing is what you put on the show. Everyone goes, yay. You play what everyone wants to hear and everyone's happy. And he said, you're not? I'm like, no, not necessarily. If they happen to like what I'm doing, cool. If they don't, they can bite me. And I'm sure in the last few years, he has sung that one, that one, that one, and that one for the 570 millionth time. And 50,000 people went, yay. That's just not for me. There's no right way
3: for any of this stuff to go. It really is up to the person. It is.
1: And everyone's fine. I mean, everyone's doing it their way as long as no one's getting hurt. I I used to put bands down when I was a younger man. I had a big head full of steam. I I can't do that now. Uh, Music and culture. You know, America is in a very interesting time right now. I wouldn't say bad. I would just say eventual and interesting. It's been, we've been working towards where we are now for quite a while. I mean, if you watch this stuff, you're not that surprised. But- as far as culturally, I don't know how much you vu vou le and hobnob in LA. I don't think LA has ever been cooler since I've been living here, as far as having an analog pulse, people you want to actually talk to again, clubs you want to go to, local bands you want to see every time they play. Like if I was a younger man, I'd be out more often. I just can't, do five hours of sleep and function all the time. I'd be out way more often because there's so many good bands and there's so many great clubs being run by thoughtful, conscientious people who love music. Yeah. I've never seen audiences so cool. The other night I was at the Palladium for La butcherettes that's a band. And Bikini Kill. And it's like sold out four nights. It's a love fest in there. There's no fights. No one's getting their t-shirt torn off. no one's getting groped. and these are the gigs I see these days. I go to gigs and there's like all these gay kids there it's, everyone's cool. I'm like because that's nothing like the gigs I I got you know it was a blender of, of flesh and testosterone when I got here. And so LA's never in my opinion never been a cooler place to dig what's happening. And so when someone gets cynical or everything sucks, I'm like, wow. You've just decided today sucks because the the truth is it's really exciting and there's a lot of things to fix, but culture is really, I think, kind of come is answering some howling, painful moan of homophobia. That 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 homophobia and racism and misogyny engenders or elicits. Music is going, oh no, we got this. Here's the new we're gonna neutralize that with this. And so it's a great time to be open-minded things are better when you go to the gig everything's better once you're you know you you perforate your can with a few holes and i have to remind myself of that a lot you know I, I i will sit alone and brood so i push myself out the door
3: thank you for uh coming
1: and having a chat yeah man i hope that was all it was really fun to talk to you same thanks to henry rollins
0: for taking the time to chat with rick you can hear our favorite Black Flag and Rollins Band songs by heading to BrokenRecordPodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash podcast, where you can find all our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Bell. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like this show, of course, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. At Theme Music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond.